start recording. Um, today's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, and it's on page 1156 in the Church Bibles. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Now I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Thank you, Margaret. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Good morning on Zoom. Nice to see you guys. Uh, My name's James Burstow. Uh, Everybody calls me Jeeb, if you're wondering if you hear that funny name. It's my nickname. Um, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, normally I attend in the afternoon and I just want to echo what Bill said that it is lovely to have an opportunity to gather together with both services see old friends, see some new faces as well Um, so it's great to be here and it is a real pleasure to be able to uh, speak to you this morning on this wonderful passage that we've just had read to us and uh, as Adam said at the start it's Palm Sunday today Uh, that was the, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the final leg of his journey to the cross Uh, In just a few days' time, he knew what was coming, Uh, and he rode into Jerusalem. People were shouting, Hosanna, we've sung Hosanna this morning. Um, And so this passage helps us to think about why did he do that? Uh, What did that achieve? Uh, And it's right at the heart of the Christian faith. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of someone asking you uh, what Christians believe, what you believe. Uh, I wonder what you said, or what would you say if someone asked you that? Where would you turn in the Bible to show them what what Christians believe? The Bible can seem very big, very daunting. I would suggest that 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, would be a good place to turn. Um, Because uh, it's a little summary of the gospel. You can go to other places in the Bible for, for much deeper, richer treatments of the gospel. The whole of the first half of Romans is an examination of the gospel. You can do it in 11 chapters. But here you've got it in actually two verses, really. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, and um, Paul says, I want to remind you 
of the gospel I preach to you. That's what we're going to be doing as well. Now, evangelical Christians use the word gospel all the time, don't we? Sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, being gospel-minded, gospel-hearted, gospel ministry. But at the simplest level, gospel simply means good news. Uh, And it's shorthand for that core essence of the Christian message. So the question is, why does Paul, after 14 chapters of this letter, suddenly decide that he needs to remind the Corinthians of the very most basic truths of the Christian faith? I think it's a bit like a football coach writing to his old players and saying, guys, I want to write to you, I just want to remind you of the basics of the game. You, You have to shoot towards the other opponent's net. Don't pick it up. You can't do that in football. Don't trip people up. That's a foul. He wouldn't bother doing that. Everybody, everyone who knows, knows football, plays football, knows the rules, don't they? So why would Paul think he needs to remind Christians of the very basics of the Christian faith? Don't Christians know that? Well, yes and no. Let's think about the Corinthian church. We know from chapter 1 that they are clearly Christians. Uh, Paul addresses his letter in verse 2 of chapter 1 to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. It's a very warm start, it's a very encouraging start. But we don't have to read much further to see that there are all sorts of problems and disagreements rumbling away in this church. There are factions following different leaders in chapter 3. There are arguments over sexual immorality uh, and legal disputes uh, in chapters 5 and 6. There's a a lack of love and thoughtfulness in the way the Lord's Supper is practiced in chapters 10 and 11. And then with regard to spiritual gifts that we've been looking at, it looks like some people feel spiritually superior to people around them. And there are others who who feel inferior. In fact, they're, they're wondering if they're even Christians at all. So there's confusion there's discord, and there's a clear lack of unity. And so after addressing all those uh, very practical issues, in chapter 15, Paul decides to remind them of the gospel, to bring them back to the very essence of the Christian faith, because that has to be the starting point for them if they want to overcome the challenges in their church. And I take it that if the Corinthian churches, uh, the Corinthian Christians were prone to forgetting the gospel or adding to the gospel or behaving in a way that was inconsistent with the gospel, then we might be too. We might be. And when any believer forgets the gospel, as Paul says there in verse 2, they are in danger of believing in vain. So this reminder is as important for us now as it was for them then. So let's dive in and look at the very heart of the gospel. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Andrew Wilson in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says, this is one of the most powerful sentences ever written. Here it is. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Let's take each of those points in turn. Firstly, Christ died for our sins. Now, Paul makes a couple of assumptions here. Firstly, he assumes that we are sinners. 
He talks about Christ dying for our sins. I think it's obvious to us when we read 1 Corinthians that they were sinners. We can see their sin. And actually, I don't know about you, I find it quite easy to look around and point to other people who I can see are sinners as well. Uh, That's the easy bit. But the Bible is clear that we are all sinners, that we all sin and fall short of the standard that God requires. There was a Pharisee once who who tried to catch Jesus out. Uh, Do you remember the story where he asked him what was the greatest commandment? He was trying to trap him. And Jesus answered, well, firstly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And secondly, love your neighbour as yourself. Every time I read that, I think that Pharisee must have really kicked himself that he asked that question, felt really stupid afterwards. It's a brilliant answer, but it is utterly condemning for human beings. Which of us can claim to have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength? Which of us can uh, say that we've loved our neighbour as ourselves? That's the standard uh, that, that God needs. He, he's perfect. He needs a perfect standard. So Paul is right to assume that we are all sinners. And to some people, that seems like a negative starting point. Why do you have to talk about sin? That's so negative. But recognising sin is fundamental to the gospel. Again, to quote Jesus, he uses the analogy of the sick and a doctor. He says only the sick need a doctor. If you're healthy, you don't bother going to the doctor for help. You don't think you need any help. You're fine. In the same way, if we think we're basically good and we think we basically deserve God's acceptance on our own merits, then why would we need a saviour? Why would we go to Jesus? We will never be able to repent and believe because we don't really think we have anything to repent of. But Paul's second assumption here is that Christ had to die for our sins. That's how serious our predicament was. For someone to give their life for someone else's is the ultimate sacrifice. That's what we call it, isn't it? The ultimate sacrifice. But there was no other way for God's wrath to be satisfied, for justice to be done. You see, deciding not to love God with our heart, soul, mind and strength and failing to love our neighbour as ourselves is precisely why there is so much evil and discord and suffering in the world. And we each play our part in that if we're honest and the penalty is death and separation from God but this is exactly why the gospel is good news that's why we need to start here because Christ died for our sins Christ died for our sins he died to swap places with us to take the punishment that we deserve so that we might take on his righteousness we're going to finish today Uh, not yet, Uh, singing Oh to See the Dawn. And uh, the chorus sums this this swap up so well. It says, This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. So Christ died for our sins and he died according to the scriptures. In other words, Jesus' death wasn't some sort of terrible tragedy that should never have happened, wasn't an accident. It was a totally deliberate act of incredible love 
that was predicted numerous times over thousands of years. Jesus knew when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly how horrendous the cross was going to be. But he went there anyway. Because he loves the people that he was going there to save. He loves you. And he loves me. So Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then Paul point, points out that he was buried. Now that might seem an unnecessary detail when you've just said that someone died. Uh, okay. But Paul wants to emphasise that Jesus really was dead. He didn't pass out. He didn't swoon and then kind of revive when everybody had gone home. Sort of go, oh, I feel better now. He was dead. And his body uh, was buried. It wasn't stolen. His body wasn't stolen by uh, robbers or eaten by wild animals. Uh, and you know, there were rumours like that circulating at the time. And even today, there are New Testament scholars who are not Christians. They study the New Testament and they're desperate to find alternative explanations for what happened that first Easter. And you will hear some of these rumours circulating. So Paul says, no, he died. He was buried. People could recognise dead bodies in those days just as accurately as they can recognise them today. Roman soldiers' core job description was to be able to kill people properly, make sure they were dead. Otherwise, sometimes they got killed themselves if they didn't do it. We are told in the Gospel accounts that Jesus was wrapped uh, in burial cloths. So his friends got close enough to touch him, to feel the coldness of his skin, to look in his face. He was dead and he was buried. And then gloriously, he was raised. On the third day, again, just as the scriptures had predicted, just as Jesus himself had predicted, he did the impossible and rose from the dead. We could spend all morning talking about the resurrection, but let me just make two points about it. Firstly, the resurrection proves that we can trust everything that Jesus said. Let's face it, he made a lot of big claims in his ministry. Uh, he said he would die for our sins. Uh, he said that those who trust him would be forgiven. Uh, he said that we would become children of God. He said that he would go to heaven and prepare a place for us and then come back to take us to be with him. Remember all those things? They're all wonderful promises. But how do we know that they were actually accomplished? I could say that to you. I could say, I'm the son of God. I'm going to go and do that. When I die, I'll come back and get you. How do you know if I really am? I know you suspect I probably won't. But lots of people have made these claims over the years. There have been Messiah figures. The difference with Jesus is he also said he would be killed and in three days he would rise again from the dead. And he did. We sing that kids song here, don't we? He promised that three days after death he'd rise again. And he did. And he did. You need to sing that to yourself. He did. Do you remember the story of the paralysed man being lowered through the roof by his friends? Jesus looked at him, lying on the floor helplessly, and slightly bizarrely said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone was expecting him to say, you're healed of your paralysis. That's what he'd come for, that's what he wanted, that's what he needed. Jesus said, no, your son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, rightly, they get this, they, they say... Only God can forgive sins. And so then Jesus says, okay, 
So that you know I have the authority to forgive sins, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man gets up, picks up his mat and goes home. Can you see that Jesus did the impossible thing that people could see to prove the impossible thing that they couldn't see? If he can make a paralyzed man get up and go home, he can forgive his sins. Only God could do that. Only God could do either of those things. And so the resurrection proves that all the other things that Jesus promised are true. We can trust him. But of course, the resurrection isn't just proof uh, that our sins are forgiven. It's a demonstration that death is defeated. Uh, As the great Easter hymn puts it, death hath lost its sting. And this is massive. Now, Adam mentioned the bereavement course earlier on. I know there are people in this room who've lost loved ones, some very recently. Death is hugely painful. And and even if we haven't yet, we will. And death is the thing that hangs over all of us. It's the curse that hangs over every single one of us. But the claim of the gospel is that Jesus has broken that curse. Hallelujah. Uh, You know, there's a brain drain going on at the moment um, of scientists who specialise in studying the ageing process and cell regeneration. If if you want to get into something, you want to get paid a lot of money, I recommend that you get into this. Um, And they're being recruited on huge salaries to life extension companies, mainly in California. Why? Well, because the tech billionaires want to solve the problem of death. Uh, we've got a, some, some pictures there. You can, you can find this all over the internet. It's happening. Google invested $1.5 billion in Calico Labs. It has a stated goal of solving death. Jeff Bezos has invested in Altos Labs, which has the same aim. Listen to what uh, Peter Thiel, he was the co-founder of PayPal. He's a billionaire. This is, this is a direct quote. There are all these people who say that death is natural, it's just part of life, and and I think nothing can be further from the truth. To me, death is a problem that can be solved. They're quite serious, these guys. They're pumping money into research to extend life, hopefully get some immortality. It turns out uh, that the yachts and the mansions and the football clubs and even the spaceships aren't enough. They want immortality. And here's the thing. Thanks to Jesus rising from the dead, Christians already know the secret. We already have it. And thanks to the grace of God, it's absolutely free. You don't have to be a billionaire to, uh, to take advantage of this offer. Uh, you just accept it freely. So uh, the resurrection is key both to the message of the gospel and to the proof of the gospel. And so then in verses 5 to 8, uh, Paul takes some time giving us confidence that it really happened. And, you know, it boils down to witnesses. Look down with me at verse 5. So the risen Jesus, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. 
That's quite a list, and it, it isn't even fully comprehensive. There are other people, I think, in, uh, listed in Scripture who saw Jesus. But Paul's point is clear. Many, many people saw Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. And uh, this large number of witnesses across such a diversity of circumstances is important because if it was just a single person who saw Jesus or a handful of people in some remote location in fading light after they'd had a bottle of wine, you might think, hmm, really? But um, it wasn't like that. Bible scholar Peter Williams points out that the resurrected Jesus was seen all over the place by all sorts of people in all kinds of situations. So, so here's some examples. He was seen in both Judea and Galilee. He was seen in towns and in the countryside. He was seen indoors and outdoors. He was seen up close and in the distance. He was seen by groups of men and groups of women and one big group of 500 people. He was seen standing, walking, eating and always talking. And as Dr. Williams says, it's hard to imagine this pattern of appearances in the gospel and early Christian letters without there actually having been multiple witnesses. Ah, but the sceptics might say, maybe you are a sceptic. I'm glad you're here if you are. What if they were lying? What if they wanted to convince everybody that Jesus had risen, even though they knew that he hadn't? Good question. But think about it. Why would they bother? If they knew Jesus hadn't done the very thing that would have proved he was the son of God rather than a fraudster, why would they go on perpetuating the lie? Especially when the same religious leaders who killed Jesus in the first place were working very hard to stop rumours that Jesus had come back to life, even if that meant arresting people, beating people up, even killing them if they said he had. Sticking to this story of Jesus' resurrection didn't bring his followers money or power or an easy life. It brought them pain and suffering and imprisonment and, in some cases, death. Why would you bother taking all that if you knew it wasn't true? One of the unique things about the Christian faith, actually, is that it's based on historical events the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And those are things that can be investigated. Uh, I've got a couple of books uh, that I want to recommend to you. Um, For adults, um, Frank Morrison's Who Moved the Stone is a brilliant examination of evidence. If this is a big question for you, it might be. Read that book. He's a, a lawyer. He's got a brilliant legal mind. He started off wanting to disprove the resurrection. He looked into the evidence and he just decided, no, it's it's powerful. And he became a Christian. If you've got um, younger ones at home, uh, Chris Morphew's book is Christianity. How do we know Christianity is really true? Uh, Has some excellent chapters on this. You can read them together around the the dinner table. um, And uh, they cover all this. But suffice to say right now, the evidence for the resurrection is compelling. In fact, I think it's actually harder to come up with alternative explanations for why the tomb was empty than accepting the obvious one. But you can challenge me on that later if you want to. So having looked at the heart of the gospel uh, and the resurrection as the proof of the gospel, let's finally think about the power of the gospel. Those same people that Paul listed as witnesses were the start of the early church. 
As Jesus died on the cross, the fo- his followers dwindled to almost nothing. Remember, even Peter, his, his right-hand man, denied him, deserted him. Basically, the church had sort of petered out. It looked so promising at one stage. Even Palm Sunday, everyone was cheering. By the time he was on the cross, it was almost gone. But after the resurrection, the most incredible power was unleashed. Every one of those witnesses took their stand on the gospel. Those very ordinary, mostly uneducated, quite self-centred, when you read the gospels, disciples, basically like you and me, they were suddenly transformed. And their transformation coincided exactly with experiencing the risen Jesus. Let's look at verses 9 to, 12, 9 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles, says Paul, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He mentions the grace of God. Uh, there it is, three times, the grace that is at heart, the heart of the gospel. Paul and Peter and all of the others knew that Jesus had died for their sins, that he'd been buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so they knew that all of the promises that God had made are yes in Christ. We sang that song earlier. Uh, and here's a, here's a verse from it. No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. How did these guys have such confidence? How did they have the bravery to go into these situations? Well, it's there, isn't it? They didn't dread their fate because they knew where they were going. They knew what Jesus had done for them. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's how ordinary people can do extraordinary things when they're empowered by the gospel. It changed the disciples on the inside. They, didn't, they no longer feared man. Uh, they know they had a room set aside for them in heaven. They knew that sin had been defeated. They knew that the grace of God was empowering their mission. Paul didn't work harder than all of them to obtain God's favour. He wasn't trying to earn his way into heaven. He was doing it from gratitude because it had already been done. And that transformed him and unleashed him, uh, the power for him to play his part in the church spreading. And that spirit of Christ, that knowledge of the gospel, empowered all the disciples and it empowers disciples today. It empowers you if you're a follower of Jesus, and it empowers me. So to conclude, let me ask you three questions as we think about how this applies to our lives. First question, very simply, do you believe it? Maybe you describe yourself as a sceptic, as I say, and, and we're delighted that you're here. If you're still looking into Christianity, this is a great place for you to be. You're in the right place. But maybe you think you're a rational, logical kind of person. Well, that's perfect. Because the, the difference between Christianity and other religions is, is Christianity is based on these historical 
events. It's based on a person who can be investigated. You still need faith, but the starting point is evidence. Who was Jesus who he said he was? Was he the son of God or was he a fraud? Did he die for our sins or did he just die? And if not, what's your explanation for the empty tomb? Let's talk about those things. Adam mentioned there's a Christianity Explored course happening after Easter. That's a brilliant place to investigate these things. If you've got any questions, just go on that course. You'll love it. Maybe you are a Christian, but you have doubts about your faith. Lots of us will be in that boat. Look at the cross. Consider the resurrection. When you feel wobbly, consider what Jesus did for you. And consider how he proved that he is who he says he is. That he does what he says he'll do. That he is powerful. That he is faithful. Have you suffered too much to believe? Look at the cross. Consider the resurrection. There is hope. This life is not all that there is. Uh, When you're wrestling with those doubts, remind yourself of the truth. I have some friends, some of you guys know them too, called James and Barbara. Uh, They were missionaries in Nigeria. And one night, some men came to their house and uh, they attacked the the watchman, the doorman. um, And James went down. They shot him in the face and left him for dead. Then they went into the house, they ransacked the house and they attacked in a brutal way his wife. Uh, James survived, but with terrible injuries. Um, and some many years later, I had the opportunity to sit down with him. And, and I said to him, how did you manage to keep your faith? How did you reconcile your faith with, with what happened to you? And he said, I looked at the cross. He said, I remembered what Jesus had done for me. I remembered how much he loved me. And it was hard to work through, but I kept looking at the cross. And you know, James and Barbara are still followers of Jesus today. They, they still have a ministry of going back to Nigeria to share the gospel with people there. And, and when I think, yet not I, but through Christ in me, that's, that's who I think of. It's not just the guys in the early church. Uh, so we suffer in this life. We don't always know why. We can't always understand why it has to be like that. One day we will know it will make sense. But in the meantime, uh, look at the cross. Consider the resurrection. Uh, that, that was what James would say if he was here. Secondly, are you living in the light of the gospel? Paul reminded the, the Corinthians of the gospel to bring them back together, to humble those who were feeling superior to lift up those who were feeling unloved and inadequate, to remind those who are in dispute that they're all sinners saved by grace and they should show each other something of the love and mercy that Christ has shown them. And we need that, don't we, just as much as those Corinthians Christians needed it. So is the gospel affecting your life? Is it affecting the way you relate to people you find difficult Is it helping you to let go of resentments or even a desire for revenge? Is it giving you the strength to keep going when when life is hard? Is it giving you hope in the face of suffering or bereavement? 
Or are you, like the Corinthians, in danger of forgetting the gospel, of, of moving on, of trying to take your stand on something else? Friends, let's encourage each other to remember the gospel every day. Maybe print out these verses, verses three and four. Print them out, put them on your fridge, in the toilet, wherever you can look at them to remember them every day. Because the more you dwell on the gospel, the more joy you will experience. The more you dwell on the gospel, the more assurance you will know. The more you dwell on the gospel, the more loved you will feel. The more you dwell on the gospel, the more willing you will be to serve. And the more you dwell on the gospel, the more you will want to tell others about it. And that's my third and very last point. If this is true, if the gospel is true, it is the best news in the world. This is what the tech billionaires need to hear. This is what your friends and neighbours need to hear. This is what your family needs to hear. Tell people about the resurrection, however you can. And you know what? We have a wonderful opportunity in seven days' time. Easter Day is that day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Don't waste it. Think right now of someone you could invite to come here next week. Wouldn't it be great if we could pack this hall out with people who don't yet know that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose again for them, because he loves them, because he loves us, and because he wants us to spend eternity with him. Let's believe it, let's live in the light of it, let's tell other people about it, and let's rejoice together in the gospel. Let's pray. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love! What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you died for our sins, that you were buried, and that you rose again after three days, exactly according to the scriptures. We thank you that that same grace that empowered your first followers is ours too, because we believe in that same message. Please empower us to believe the gospel, to live in its light, and to tell others about it whenever we can. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.